So, right. so what, what, what we're typically looking for is about a 70-30 ratio of ketones to sugar. Okay. And if you look at the brain, um, the science tells us the research, and I'm not, I, I don't like that word because it's been so demonized by so many people that hide behind science to sell stuff. So uh, Stephen Cunan has proven in his laboratory that about 90% of, of the fat in our brain actually comes from ketones. And the brain uses these small little building blocks as bricks to build bigger fats. So that's where the healthy fats come from. Um, and if you're using sugar to do that, as, a, as we said before, it is not the ideal ideal substrate. But um, so if you are in a ketogenic diet, if you are a carnivore, you're producing tons of ketones, you're producing enough sugar for the sugar dependent tissue. But for the most part, most of our body requires ketones. However, you need insulin to get some of that sugar into cells. And if the insulin is suppressed, we have to trigger that in our carnival veterans. So that's the, that's really the language that we speak. So it yeah. is an evolving pattern of diet based upon where you are. And in the with blood work, we can measure that in our patients and make corrections at the appropriate time. Interesting. So it really is a feedback system of knowing where you are on the journey. Uh, you know, where you are right now, you're feeling great. You're still in, probably in the process early on of correcting insulin resistance. Ah. And it's getting better and better and better. Um, but it takes quite a while for the body to repair itself fully. Uh, you know, you don't do something today and suddenly you're happy and healthy. Uh, it slowly has to correct itself. So you, are you suggesting that, Patrick here, I'm going to continue to feel better and better and more energy than I have today? Uh, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Wow. And, and you know, Patrick, so you get better and better and better, and then you reach a steady state where it's just who you are. And you say, well, you know what? You're still going to have some flat days, some good days. But then you go back and you screw up and you eat something you shouldn't. And then you realize how awful you actually feel. Yeah. So my, uh, my um, on-ramp to this whole thing, I, I saw an interview with a Sally K. Norton about oxalates, right? Yes. And she, I don't know, she just captured my imagination, Doc. I said, man, maybe this girl knows what she's talking about. So a lot of the carnivore people, and we've had Chafee and, and other people on, um, um, and Dr. Kiltz, Klitz, something like that, mm -hmm. really cool guy, I liked him a lot, um, is that, um, yeah, it's Kiltz, uh, rather, Kiltz. Kiltz, yeah. That, that all of these plants have... Um, oxalates and other chemicals that they put out because they don't want to be eaten so how what are you in vegetables do you think that we need them do you eat them do you suggest your patients eat vegetables i think this is where again genetically people are somewhat different mm -hmm. um an interesting comment is that no mammal no mammal tolerates grain products right all mammals have what we call celiac disease that irritates the intestine. Obviously, we'll bring it in Texas. They do a lot of this. They'll bring cows into a feedlot and feed them grain products to fatten them up. Think about that, Patrick. We bring cows into feedlots to fatten them up. Yeah. How is that different from us going to McDonald's to fatten up? But those grain products will also cause, trigger an inflammatory response in the intestine. And sometimes we can tolerate it so it doesn't bother us. Grains don't bother me, but other people have profound reactions to it, and they are so-called uh, celiac disease or gluten intolerant. Aye. But at a subclinical or a clinical level, the plants defend themselves by creating a reaction. However, at the same time, a lot of those plants have a, an enjoyment value. They don't necessarily have a nutrition value. Mm -hmm. but, 
So if you can tolerate them, they're fine to eat in small amounts. If they cause intolerable disease, um, guess what? Stay away from it. If you've got a lot of inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, acid reflux, stay away from it. Do the experiment. And then if you want to try again, you can reintroduce that, have a salad, see how that works. If the salad makes you feel terrible, stay away from it. That's logical. The only comment about Sally Norton is that while plants have a lot of oxalates in them, human beings genetically have lost, evolutionarily have lost the capacity to ferment plants. Cows and gorillas, who are vegetarian animals, use their stomachs or their colons to ferment plants so that they can absorb them. We use bacteria in our intestine, those animals do, to ferment the plants so they can absorb them. Human beings are enzyme digesters. In other words, our entire biology consists of using enzymes, not fermentation, Enzyme. to extract nutrition from our food. So a lot of those plants just pass through us um, un, uh, uh, unchanged, yeah. and the oxalates guard with them. The primary source of oxalates in the human body, harmful toxic oxalates, do not come from our diet, at least not directly. There's something called the Krebs cycle, which is the cycle where you turn sugar into energy. Okay. And as part of that, as one of the carrier molecules, we've got something called oxalic acid. And if you've got too much sugar coming in and too little ATP or AMP to pick it up on the other side, the body spins off those oxalates. And in the human body, the dangerous oxalates come from production by the liver when it's trying to handle sugar, particularly fructose in excess. It does not come from the consumption of oxalates in large amounts from wow. our food. Wow. Does that make sense? So, yeah. I, you know, I know Sally Norton very well. I dispute some of the rationale. It's, it's, it's as easy to say, well, we're eating fat, therefore it clogs our arteries. There's a lot of oxalates in food, in, in, our, in plants, therefore it must be clogging our vessels. Because people, if I put people just on a pure fructose diet, the oxalic acid levels can go up irrespective of no plants. So it is a production issue, not a consumption issue. Really having said which, having said which, there are extremely few plants that we eat that are natural. Really? Think about this. Um, human beings have hybridized plants to make them edible. And it's a, it's a beautiful study you can do. You can go to Dr. Google and just Google ancient grain, ancient watermelon, ancient banana. They were these, I mean, uh, um, corn used to look like wheat, hmm. even more pathetic than wheat. And we hybridized it and hybridized it to produce bigger, more productive seeds. So here, there are very, very, very few foods that we eat in the plant kingdom that are natural, that are the way they grew in nature. You know, blueberries used to be tiny little things this big, sour. Yeah. Now we've hybridized them to be these big, juicy things. And they're not full of, of nutrients. They're just full of more sugar. Interesting. Can I get you to move to your right a little bit? Uh, I want you more in the center. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Attaboy. Okay, Attaboy. there we go. Yeah, uh, with, I was wondering which way to move With there. Dr. Robert okay. Sivas, MD and PhD. The PhD, again, was in liver... Metabolism. Metab liver transplant, liver metabolism. Wow, so you really understand this. Um, I'm trying to... Uh, think about some of the questions that would be coming in if we were live because we're recording this. I'm thinking, um, what about salmon? Is salmon a reason? It's got omega-3s, reasonable? Salmon, if you can tolerate, is one of the healthiest foods you can eat. So um, 
Hmm. Mar- including marine food, including fish and, and seafood in your diet, if you tolerate, if you like it, is one of the healthiest things you can do. And um, while salmon is, uh, wild-caught salmon is one of the healthiest things you can eat, even if you eat the farm-raised salmon, is it ideal? No. Probably. But if you can afford it, I'd rather you eat salmon of any kind than eat pasta, if that makes sense. And why is salmon good for you? I mean, some people... There's so many people out there now talking about all these omega-3s aren't good for us, but... Well, because the human brain cannot exist without omega-3s. And I've got a little table right here on my desk. So if you look at wild pink salmon, uh, it has around 740 milligrams. uh, For 85 grams of salmon, it has 740 grams of DHA, Mm -hmm. which is that essential or conditionally essential fat for our brains and for our blood vessels. Mm -hmm. So one portion of salmon has almost as much as you need in a day, and the liver can quite easily produce that other uh, other 260 grams, so milligrams. So one portion of salmon, of wild-caught salmon, but if you go to the um, regular salmon, uh, farmed salmon, we're looking at 595 grams, up to 600 grams. So the difference is not that much if you can't afford. What I tell my patients is this, buy the healthiest, most naturally raised meat you can fall, sure, afford. Sure. But if you can't afford it, at least buy meat. Don't say, well, I can't afford meat, go and buy crap. <laughs> right, right. Does that, does that yeah, exactly. And that leads us to this idea of... Um, you know, I was looking at trying to find an organic, grass-fed, grain-finished beef just to get a little more fat. You know, in the, but it, that's, it doesn't sound like that's a good idea, even if it's organic grain. Huh? Great. Early on, it's reasonable to increase your fat consumption. But where you are right now, as long as you're eating that beef, I'd rather, if you can afford it, go grain-fed, right. grass-fed, grass-finished. Grass-finished. Um, we talked about the lipofuscin and the yellow fat before. Well, the, whether you're a cow or a human, you're producing the same type of fat. Mm-hmm. That fat is different than the fat that comes from eating pasture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with eggs. You know, ideally, you should get free-range or pasture-fed eggs. But if you're going to get battery eggs, it's still better to eat a battery-fed egg. You know, what I tell people is this. If you hatch an egg from a chicken in a battery or hatch an egg from a chicken that was pasture-raised, it's still going to become a chicken. Mm. Yeah. Okay. It's still enough to support life. Exactly. So then what about the food? Like we can, we can get uh, chickens with uh, soy, uh, eggs with soy-free and, and organic grain, and that's cool. And, but in general, when cows or species eat things that are maybe GMO grains um, and such, non-organic, does that go and get into us? I mean, is that an issue for us? Well, you know, the issue with GMO stuff is that it typically has been produced to remove a disease issue from them. It's not going to cause additional things. So I I don't want to get into this whole, it's too emotive for me to get into the whole GMO side of things. I try to get source food that is mostly natural, but GMO is not all bad. It depends if the motive is for profit or truly to eradicate a health issue. Does that make sense? What about um, what about Senef's work and the glyphosates and the sulfur cycle and all that Stephanie Senef? Right, and, and that's what I don't want to get into because I think the trickle down effect. You know, the reality is this, Patrick. That no. oh, if you can eliminate those things, it's fine. But for the most part, given what we're doing to the air quality, if you breathe, you're probably getting more crap in your lungs, <laughs> breathful 
than you'll ever get in your food. That's you know? probably so. You know, if we, you know, just kind of fight the battles you can win or something like that. You know, what's the saying? Yeah, and I, yeah. exactly. You know, I I have an issue sometimes. Look, look, if you if you're able to be puristic, that's fine. But most of us, good enough is good enough. Yeah. And the first shift is to eliminate the sugar and starch from your diet. Then you can migrate to eating some plants and animals, and then maybe if you if you're okay with it, let go of the plants and migrate toward the animals. The quality of the animal is ideal, but it's not critical. Um, okay, so Let, let's so talk the about the important. Be the better. Let's talk about the important stuff, and that's pooping. You know, poop. Let's yes. talk about that. When I was doing really organic foods, a little bit of rice, a little fish, you know, some baked potato, a little fruit, you know, I would poop two, three, four times a day. I mean, it was just coming out, which is pretty good, I guess, because people say it's a good thing. But now, you know, sometimes with just this meat and eggs and butter and some goat's milk, maybe every other day, pooping. And I, But you know what? I don't feel like, I don't feel bad. If, if I was not pooping a lot, eating all this other stuff, so I guess the question is, with all those other things I was eating when I was pooping three times a day, they were it, it was just going back out. I mean, did, did I even need them? You know, Correct. did I right. even need them? Is what I've been thinking about. It's like, whoa, what's up with that? Well, well okay, so let's look at a few facts. Yeah. So I, this is just logic, okay? If you look at babies, you take two types of babies. You get formula-fed babies and breastfed babies. Right. Formula-fed babies poop much more often and much more voluminously than typically in breastfed babies. Oh, do they? Hmm. They, they do. And um, the, one of the big differences between formula and breastfed, again, this is where humans have said, aha, we know more than God and nature, because <laughs> ideally formula should be as close to breast milk as it can possibly be. Right. Because breast milk is there for a reason. It's the healthiest food a baby can eat. And I don't think there's any argument there. But what we've done is we said, okay, let's take formula and make it better. So what did we do with formula in our wisdom? We took saturated fat out. We lessened the protein, we increased the carbohydrates, and we added something to formula that does not exist in breast milk. Oh. You know what that is? No. Fiber. fiber. There is no fiber. There is no fiber in breast milk. So if fiber Whoa. was necessary for the human intestine, then every baby should explode. Wow. And there's okay? no fiber in and meat, right? There's no fiber in meat. There's no fiber in meat. So so what we've done is mm. we've we've added fiber to baby's formula because in our wisdom as humans, we think we're better than nature and God, and we have added fiber in because it's necessary. Well, fiber does help you to poop. It helps cows and gorillas to poop. But if you're a lion or a pure carnivore, fat, salt, and water make very healthy poops. Now, let's look at humans when they're older. Hmm. The human small intestine is the longest small intestine in the animal kingdom. Hmm. Okay, so you've got the stomach, you've got the small intestine, then the colon. Yes, sir. And the humans have the and the reason for that is because we have become primarily enzymatic in our digestion of food. So when you eat meat, the majority of the meat is digested enzymatically and absorbed. There's very, very little residue. Just the little, residue that's that why you don't poop as much. There's nothing left. Correct. <laughs> the residue that comes out the bottom is some waste products that get released into the gut higher up, mm -hmm. bile and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. and then maybe a little bit of gristle. Now, if you're a lion and you're eating the fur and the skin of the animal, if you look at a lion's poop, it stinks to high heaven, but it's this little white and black molecule or, or little 
Hmm. White and black turd. And I come from Africa. I know what lion poop <laughs> you looks know what like. Lion poop looks and like. It's, you'll see the hair. You'll see the. But it's all just residue. Ah. And lions do not get colon cancer. They don't get diverticulitis. They don't get all that irritable. So. I will tell you, I'll go down a limb here and I will tell you hmm. that the cause of a lot of our colon issues, colon cancers, diverticulitis, hemorrhoids, is because we believe that fiber is necessary in our diet wow. and it isn't, wow. rather than the lack of fiber. They'll, the, the conventional doctors will tell you when you've got diverticulitis, oh, eat more fiber. I will tell you exactly the opposite. Wow. Wow. Does it make sense? Yes, sir. So, hmm. no fiber, no diverticulitis. So, if my son, for example, is being raised. He's been a carnivore since before he was an embryo. Before okay. he was, before he, he was. So my wife was, my wife was mostly carnivore before we conceived the baby. Wow. So he's been carnivore his entire life. He yeah. poops completely normally and small volumes and absolutely fine. Hasn't exploded yet. Um, and he consumes very, very little fiber. How, how often does he poop? Uh, he poops anywhere from once every other day to a couple of times a day. Every other, and you know the fascinating thing about it. When I was doing all the carna, uh, sugar and carbs, if I didn't poop more than once a day, I felt terrible. You know what I right. mean? I felt bloated, and I needed to poop. And you started to take stuff to go make you poop, which I'm looking back on, and I was crazy. Well, think about this: what the colon does with vegetables is it has to ferment them. It has to ferment. You know, when you eat a salad, what comes out is not salad. Um, but what comes out is poop. So that's all fermentation by bacteria in the colon that creates that wow. awful... In the colon, it ferments it. In the colon, it, there's fermentation. And that fermentation is acidic. It produces a lot of uh, very unnatural chemicals that damages, that's toxic to the colon. So now we're getting uh, irritable bowel, we're getting infl inflammation, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, wow. cancers. That's from, those are from those things. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a little experiment that we did with my son. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't an experiment. It was just one of those things. But as I said, he's almost a pure carnivore. And a while ago, we were uh, and actually inside Excuse Africa, me, how old is he just for? He's two. He's, he's not even two. He's turning two later this month. Okay, two. So, but <laughs> um, we were at my mother's place in South Africa, and she had some mixed vegetables. So she had some. Uh, corn peas. It's like you go to you go to Publix and you buy the mixed sure, sure. mixture, and little little cubed stuff. Yeah. And he had a few handfuls of it. And we were in the pool. Now this is a, it may shake up your audience a little bit, but the next day or later that night, we were in in a swimming pool. And he's a two year old, so he still wears a swim diaper. Yes, he's not potty trained yet. Right. And I looked right. and I saw some peas and corn floating in the water. <laughs> oh, what's that? And he basically had pooped out. Um, intact it went intact. right through right through every right and the reason he did that is because his whole his whole microbiome everyone talks about the microbiome his whole microbiome is carnival based it's the bacteria the funguses and the virus in his gut is designed to take to break down meat it is not designed to break down vegetables because he doesn't have fermentation bacteria so when he ate these vegetables once uh once he ate he had nothing to break them down. Wow. And they the just went right through. Break them down, so they just went right through. And and that was just an interesting little end of one experiment. <laughs> right. We didn't do it intentionally, but it was just, and then I had to sit down and think, okay, why did this happen? And it happened be because if a, a regular person who eats a lot of vegetables eats those, sometimes they come out whole, but for the most times they don't. They just form, because you've got the bacteria to digest them. Right. 
And, and that's why we have two separate sets of bacteria. We've got one for carnivores and one for vegetarian people. And the two are very different. They're very distinct. And one is associated with higher levels of disease. The other one is, is associated with higher levels of health. Are you, are you suggesting then long-time carnivores, if they would go to public and get some of those mixed vegetables, frozen, organic, and eat them, that they would just come out? They would, they... You, you do the experiment, Patrick. Okay, and let me know. I will. <laughs> and I can tell you, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was telling, uh, talking to a dear friend of mine and, and telling about this and, and the carnivore thing, and she said, well, isn't, it was an interesting question. Aren't meats really, meat and dairy and all that really acidic? And we have to have enough alkaline to make everything happy. Can you answer that question? Then when she posed uh, very, to me, very easy. Yeah. yes, uh, it's complete. It's absolute rubbish. Okay, absolute rubbish. And the reason for that is this: the esophagus is alkaline, so okay. our saliva is alkaline. the 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 human stomach is one of the most acidic stomachs of any species. Wow. We take our pH down to about three or four. So we acidify the food, which kills a lot of the bacteria and things. Some gets through. Then as soon as the food enters the upper small intestine, we produce about one and a half liters of bile per day, about half a gallon of bile a day, no matter what you're eating and drinking. Wow. And bile is super alkaline. So we alkalinize our food. So the stomach breaks the food down into this mush, slop. And then we infuse the bile to neutralize the stomach acid and to alkalinize the food. And then all of our digestion happens in an alkaline environment. When vegetables get to the colon, some of those colons, and the colon is very alkaline, sometimes tr the, the, the metabolism by those bacteria acidify whatever we eat, whether it's vegetables or meat, and that acidification process is harmful. But if you're a carnivore, that meat, the pH of the meat doesn't matter because the intestine changes the pH along the pathway. So, so if you're eating a ribeye steak uh, um, and, and not much comes out, where does it all go? I mean, uh, there's like to six... To your muscles, to your fat cells, to your liver, to your body. I'm actually getting some more little muscles here, and I don't do much of anything. I do some exercises, push-ups, and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. And, and if you look at my son, he's at the 97th percentile for height and the 95th percentile for weight. But he has calf muscles that are like two little hamburgers in his calves. <laughs> he is so muscular. <laughs> and we compare him to his cohort of Gerber-raised babies. They're just fluffy and fat. They look, uh, you know, Mushy. they look like sharp-aid dogs. They've got all this excess skin and fat, but no muscle. And, I mean, he is, and he's not a special kid. It's just based on his diet. Sure, sure. But he is a block. I mean, he could play running back. Dallas is not so good right now. So he could be a running back for Dallas next week. Um, <laughs> he's that sizable. I mean, he's just this solid, solid well, thing. You can go to my wife's page. It's called Carb She's called Carb Addiction Mom on Instagram and Carb and Addiction Facebook. Mom. Let me write that Mom, down. And you'll see pictures of our son. And you'll also see what we eat. Oh, and, cool. and you'll see kind of some of the stuff there. But he is solid with muscle so where does the where does the ribeye steak go get buck naked in the mirror that's where it went <laughs> that's what so, so how do you how does he chew it up do you do like some of the animals do it you chew it and put it in his mouth or? he's had a full set of teeth since 10, 10 months of age because your wait, teeth wait, 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 wait. he's got a full set of teeth at two years old yeah no he had them at 10 months by 10 months he had all 20 of his teeth whoa is that unusual? Is, baby step. is that yeah, unusual? That's, it's much earlier, much earlier. Now, some kids will have a few teeth, but uh, his cohort, when he had a full set of, of a full mouth full of teeth, a lot of his peers, uh, same age, had maybe their front teeth or maybe their bottom teeth. Mm -hmm. But 
because if you're drinking milk and eating Gerber products all day long, you don't need teeth. So he teeth what did you give him early from, on besides breast milk? Did you start introducing meat? At four months of age, he ate his first piece of ribeye steak and basically eats everything I eat. So I mean, when when last did you see a two-year-old eat oysters and mussels and, uh, you know, he'll, he'll eat everything. He eats liver. Uh, he's not that, he doesn't like his liver so much. His mom always jests with because I like liver. But he'll eat everything. Huh. He eats everything we eat. And, and how long did he breast, uh, breastfed? No, that was an issue. My mom, my, my, my mom, my wife was unable to breastfeed for very long. So he breastfed for six months, for six weeks. And it was a challenge. So we actually imported, because breast milk in, in America is basically baby milkshake. It is not good for babies. So we actually imported uh, our milk from Europe. And on my wife's page, you can see that. So, but by four months, he was starting to eat meat. So if your wife was carnivores, uh, in theory, a, a great diet, how come she couldn't breastfeed longer? Did you figure that out? She had, she, she's had surgeries on her, surgeries on her breast ah. to adequately producing breast, ah. breast milk. So, and she's very public about that, which sure. is one of the things she was very uh, sad about and actually had quite bad postpartum depression because of it. Mm -hmm. But we did the best we could to keep him healthy. So we still believe that breast milk is the best. If you can't for sure. social reasons or for physical reasons, there are surrogates. And um, so we found that, but we also started feeding him very early. And now the other thing also that may disgust a lot of people, Patrick, but you ask, how does he eat now for several months? He didn't have teeth. So we would pre-chew his food and give it to him. Guess yeah. what he's getting? He's getting all my enzymes. He's yeah. getting all my bacteria. And everywhere in the world, that's what animals do. That's what animals do. Yeah, I've seen, the world, I've seen videos. They yeah, they do. It. The yeah, they exactly. do. It. <laughs> so, you know, oh, but that's disgusting. So, and instead, here, let's open up a can of Gerber and give him <laughs> Gerber mush. And isn't it fascinating, this whole thing about the baby formula? And I was writing on my Facebook, it's better, I just don't eat that stuff. Do something else. <laughs> Absolutely. Just go buy goat's Absolutely. milk or, or even cow's milk, organic yeah. cow's milk, you know. Yeah. Do you think there's a big deal between uh, pasteurized butter, pasteurized goat's milk, pasteurized cow's milk, and raw? Do you think it's a... I think that, well, you know, the reason we pasteurized food or pasteurized milk and other foods is because of the bacterial level. And in fact, uh, Louis Pasteur worked with a disease called cowpox, which was a virus that occurred in uh, the milk. Well, our days of that are long gone. As long as you buy a clean source of milk, raw is always best. I mean, I remember growing up in, in South Africa, my parents had some goats and some cows, and I'd be lying under the udder, literally milking <laughs> it, that warm milk into my mouth. Not, uh -huh. not all the time, but that's what we had. We certainly, it's even worse than that. So we've got the pasteurization. Is there a huge difference? Probably not. If you can access raw, it's ideal, but make sure you know where the source is. But pasteurizer raw is not as much an issue. America is one of the few countries where we take the milk out of the cow or the goat and then we separate off the cream because yeah. you know fat is so bad for you. So um, whole milk in this country is not what came out of the cow. Hmm. It's, they've removed the fat. So in fact, it, when I go back home to South Africa, we have something called full cream milk, which is the exact the milk that came out of the cow. It's been pasteurized, but it's the exact much much higher layer of, layer of cream. In this country, we have to buy uh, heavy cream and add it in, and even the heavy cream's got stuff in it. So it is not ideal. So if you can if you can get raw milk. The value is not just the fact that it wasn't pasteurized, but the value is also in the fact that it's it's been unseparated. Mm -hmm. It is what came out of the cow or the goat, and that's the value. Does it make, does it make sense? Yes, sir. Robert Saibis, thanks so much for your time, and I really overstayed our welcome here. We've do, gone almost two hours, but thank you. Uh, before we go, I, I'd like to understand 
go back a little bit to the DHA and the omega-3s and how much we need. I mean, so much negative things have been said about fish oils in my on my show, people I've talked to, these things are dangerous, they're toxic, or too much omega-3s. You don't agree with that, right? And how much, If do I need to get omega-3s just eating butter and eggs and, and meat? Do I need to get some more omega-3s in there? I, I, You know, my position, and this is not my position, this is what I've learned from the scientists that are doing this work, Okay, um, is that the requirement of the human brain is around 1,000 milligrams per day. 1,000 milligrams of DHA? 1,000 milligrams a day. DHA? Every day. Okay. Every day. That's, that's the ongoing 24-7 requirement by the brain. Um, a small amount is made by the liver, but then you need the EPA, the other precursors for that. But the liver cannot produce that amount. So therefore, DHA is what we call a conditionally essential nutrient. We have to consume it in our diet because we can't make enough. Some is stored in our fat cells, so a carnivore will store a higher level of DHA in your fat cells. And as those fat cells get broken down between meals, you release that DHA. If you're insulin resistant, you're not releasing that fat cells. So you're at an even greater deficit because you can't access those stores. Um, so therefore, the next best place to get DHA from is your butter, your eggs, your and particularly the highest concentration of DHA is in marine food, your fish, your seafood, um, your shellfish. But we do get a butter and eggs. And, and, and we not- do get a small amount, but not enough. Mm-hmm. So I fairly heavily focus on adding seafood to my food. Okay. Sometimes okay. I eat pure seafood. Sometimes I'll have a piece of salmon with my steak okay. or some oysters with my steak or some mussels with my steak or some sardines with my food. Um, and then, because so that I think is adequate for most people. However, if you have a history of heart disease or a family history of heart disease, in my, my case, my mother is dying of Alzheimer's, my uh, grandmother died of Alzheimer's, we have in our family something called the ApoE4 gene, which is a gene that is heavily correlates with Alzheimer's. Um, the defense against early Alzheimer's is a very high level of DHA. So the only supplement that I take is a 500 milligram DHA fish oil every day. And I just make sure that it's fresh, that it doesn't turn rancid. The whole yeah. concept of rancidity yeah. is that's been disproven by most manufacturers. There was a paper out of Sweden that studied 17 people and they found some rancid. That's from 15 years ago. It's not been duplicated. Most fish oil is absolutely fine. It's been lying on your shelf for three months, throw it out and get another one. But we get the fresh stuff and we use it within uh, a few days. If you want to do cod liver oil, that's fine too. Um, but I believe that the benefit of the DHA in my personal situation is far greater than any concerns you have with it. Because you have the, that APOE4 gene. I've got the APOE4 gene. I've got one copy of it and I don't want to I don't want my brain to turn to Swiss cheese. Do you, do you think we uh, these genes can change or will change? No. You don't think no. so? No, they, they are what they are. Now, over time, the newer genes are the are the threes and the twos, ApoE, ApoE3 and ApoE2, which are the healthier genes. The ApoE4 is one of the oldest ones, but I can't change my genetics. Hmm. And there's a 50% likelihood my son has the same. And what would be an easy way for our listeners and your host here to determine if they are currently insulin resistant, can we do something at home to to test that? Yeah, let me just correct it. My son has a one quarter chance of having it. Sorry, okay. I said a half, fifty percent. I was quarter percent. Okay. The, the only way to know is to get your blood work done, 
And most doctors will not check insulin levels or C-peptide levels because they don't understand it. So they don't understand it, they don't see a need for it. And, you know, most of my of the patients that access me online who are carnivores who are already doing this want the blood work, not only the blood work, but also the interpretation, because it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. I've got quite a few videos on my YouTube site, which yeah. is Carb Addiction Health, that breaks down the blood work. But that's what we do in my office continuously. And I'll tell you, the, the Patrick, the interesting thing, and I, I apologize this to people who try to contact me. If you call my office now and you want an appointment with me, and I work hard. I work 12 hours a day, five days a week, wow. just seeing people. Uh, you're going to be getting a new appointment in late March, early April of next year. That's how busy we are. That's how much, well, there's two parts to this. That's how much interest there is from the public in this. But also, more importantly, that's how few doctors out there are doing are doing, are doing what you're doing. Yeah. And what are the and things that you're more, you're really uh, looking at uh, with an insulin? Like if I did my own blood test, what what are some of the markers I want to make sure that they take? Well, what you want to look at is insulin, C-peptide, hemoglobin A1C, a lipid profile. Not to see what your cholesterol. Your cholesterol is going to be yeah. high because it's supposed okay. to be high. Yeah. But you want to look at your triglycerides and your HDL. You want to look at your uh, BUN, your creatinine, your protein turnover. So the way I look at it, Patrick, and this is important to understand, most doctors look at one number to throw a pill at. Yeah. I look at blood work to tell a story. One number does not tell a story. It's a team sport. So I look at the different numbers to tell the story. And, and that's kind of what distinguishes people like myself. Now, if you go to a website called SMHP, the S- Society for Metabolic Health Practitioners, SMHP. SMHP.org, okay. you will find a list of doctors throughout the country, throughout the world, that practice this way. Ah. And you can access them in their practice. Hmm. My, my information is on there, but there are many physicians all over the country. Some are cardiologists, some are dietitians, some are functional medicine doctors, some are surgeons like myself, but we all practice the same way. And that's where we can access people that will do that testing. And is there enough information on your YouTube channels, and we would look for Robert C-Y-V-E-S, to somebody could do this themselves in their blood test, figure it out? I would, I would strongly recommend against that. And the, the reason for that is you can get the blood work done, but the interpretation is the issue. And it's an algorithm of figuring out where you are. I'll give you an example. A lot of people, carnivores, did not focus on insulin suppression. They blew it off. And only once we started looking at some of the other numbers and interpreting them comparatively, we were able to say, hey, this might be a little bit of a problem. Let's shift back a little bit. So um, to my mind, and it's not because I do this for a living. I Believe me, I've got plenty of patients. Self-interpretation <laughs> may lead to incorrect conclusions. Right. But... Would we not feel, I mean, if everything's going great, everything, would we, wouldn't we? would we feel if there was something amiss without even doing blood tests? No. No, and you the don't reason think so? for that is because feeling ill is insidious. You know, what we do, what obese people do is they make their world smaller and smaller and smaller by doing less, but they're pretty comfortable in that small world. Hmm. Diabetics don't feel awful because they didn't suddenly become diabetic. Yeah. It's, so it is what they are is natural for them. It's only once you've improved and then you, you have that meal that go, wow, now I realize how bad it was. 
but we don't realize how sick we actually are. The last person to know they're an alcoholic is the alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, true. Exactly. You know, and they, they accommodate for the headaches and the, and the horrible feeling uh, because that's the world they live in. So unfortunately, no. Sometimes you feel awful and you want answers, but it takes for a long, a long time to get those answers. So not always. Dr. Robert Kiltz, who was on last week, we liked him. He talked about some kind of a coating on the colon. Um, do you know what he was talking about there? He had a word for it. Glyco. Oh, uh, glycocalyx. Yeah. Glyco, uh, yeah, the glycocalyx. Uh, the, the, Glycobiome really glycobiom or Glycobiome. Okay, so it's a layer of mucus that the intestine secretes to protect itself from bacteria and other things. Wow. And it also is mucus that creates a gliding so that poop comes out easily. Really? Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's like sandpaper. So the entire saliva, if you look at your saliva, when you're not eating or drinking something, it's very thick, and that mucus is the same thing. Hmm. And so that's what we get with a more meat-based, uh, animal-based diet. Correct. It changes. That, that changes. It's there for everybody, but it changes its nature. Do you know what's so fascinating here? We talked to you for two hours, and I really appreciate the, your time. But everything that you're saying and the other carnivore docs we've talked to is like 180 degrees from probably 95% of humanity today. I mean, today, it, correct. Isn't correct. that, I mean, isn't that, doesn't that blow your mind? Wow. Well, if you, if you go back a few thousand years ago where we were still hunter gatherers. Yeah. I would say that 95% of people were aligned with us and less than 5% were aligned the other way. The other way. So it's just... So, it's, you know, it, it, is, it is what it is. But I'm not going to tell anybody they must or should no, have. No, of course to. not. I provide no. information. And the one thing that I encourage people to do is do the experiment. And like you've done the experiment for a few months and you're feeling great. If you didn't feel great, you'd abandon the experiment. Right, right. But try it and see. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, I, the amazing thing for me is what most doctors do is they're, okay, I've lost 100 pounds, I'm feeling better, I'm on no medications anymore, my blood pressure's better, my diabetes is gone, my cholesterol's high, so you're telling me it's a bad diet. Yeah. How has it affected yeah. your sleep? Because um, there's sometimes well, I'll go days. three or four hours in the middle of the night and I'm just wide awake. I don't feel tired. Not, I'm just not thinking because I meditate. Just, I'm, it's just like in the middle of the day. What's up with well, that? I think that's an important concept. So two changes. First of all, mm -hmm. your quality of sleep improves significantly, but the quantity of required sleep decreases. Does it? So mm. um, you may only need five or six hours of sleep where before you were tired after eight. So the quality improves, especially if you lose a bit of weight, if you've got a weight problem. Um, but the quality of sleep improves, therefore the, the, the amount decreases a little bit. But that's a slightly different for different people. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm only 130 pounds. So, how, before we go, how did you lose 100? You lost 100 pounds. What were you eating before and after? Do you just, this, you want to carnivore? No, I, so I, this is 20, over 23 years. So, wow. I was just over 300 pounds. I, was, I call myself 297 because fat people never get on the scale when they're really fat. <laughs> but I know I was over 300. And I progressively removed carbohydrates from my diet. So I, I went, this is 23 years ago, just after Atkins. So I was low carb, high protein for a long time, lost a lot of weight with that, but felt like crap. Started adding in more fat in the about 20 years ago, mm. uh, about 15 years ago. And slowly, I'm carnivore, not because necessarily it's so much healthier or better. I'm carnivore because it's simpler, easier, and I prefer to eat that way. Yeah. So 
the more important thing is to be on a ketogenic diet, eliminate the carbohydrates, and the more you migrate to carnivore, it has benefits, but they aren't just health benefits. They're also practical benefits. I got, I got kind of annoyed at having to throw out old dead vegetables at the end of the week. And my dog won't eat a leftover salad, but he will eat a leftover hamburger. <laughs> and I'll, I'm comfortable eating leftovers. So it had a pragmatic component to it. Plus, I love to eat this way. Yeah, it's pretty easy. I mean, I just have meat sitting in the fridge and cut off what I think I'm going to eat and, you know, sear it and I'm good, you know, some eggs. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Do you think it's important to eat both parts of the eggs, the yellow and the whites? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're not just going to eat uh, the, the, the chicken. If you think about a chicken, what you're eating is the whole animal. Yeah. It's the, it's the best whole animal to eat. So, yeah, eat both. So, Dr. Seifus, what are you going to do this weekend? We, we're talking to you on Saturday morning. What, what kind of things do you do with your family on the weekend, during the weekend? Well, this, uh, today I'm going out on, on a boating. With, we've got some friends in town, so oh. we're going boating today. Uh, the weekends are my downtime to spend with my son, to spend with my family, to have fun. Yeah. And um, while I work very hard, uh, having fun is also very important from a mental health perspective. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. We're on a Saturday morning now, even though it's Monday when you are hearing this. So um, before we go, uh, kind of give folks a layout of your website and your social so they can find you and your wife's work before we go. Yeah, I think the, the, the best place to access our content is on YouTube. We have a YouTube YouTube channel. It's called Carb Addiction Doc. Mm -hmm. And if you subscribe, it's free, but it helps us because um, I produce all the content for free. Okay. Um, as a physician, I've chosen not to market anything. So if you see ads popping up, Google's getting paid, not yeah, on the Yeah, I understand. Um, yeah. We also have a, a YouTube, uh, sorry, a TikTok um, Facebook and, and um, Instagram channel. My, my name is Carb Addiction Doc on all three venues. My wife is Carb Addiction Mom. Hmm. So, and she posts pictures of what we eat, what we're doing. I hmm. tend to put more information out there mm -hmm. um, because it's not about me. It's more about me with my doctor's hat on and my, my guide hat on. She's more about what we do in the family. Yeah. Do you have a lot of clients where you work with uh, newborns, like like what you're, you've done? I bet you the do. Spectrum, you know, the ideal time to access a patient or for a person to access me is if you're thinking about having a baby. Hmm. And spending a few months before you even try to get pregnant, conditioning your body, both male and female, but mostly the female, the the, the mother, as healthy as you can be before you get pregnant. Yeah. And then we manage it through the pregnancy. We manage the mother and the baby. And then obviously we manage adults as well. It is ideal to be proactive rather than be 50 years old and awfully sick on 10 medications with an arrhythmia and now say, I want to get better. Right. Yes, we can help you to do that. We help a lot of people to do that. But being more proactive is much better. So with what, what's your diet? I keep having more questions. Sorry. Uh, do you take any supplementation whatsoever? In pills, sure. three, three omega fatty acids. That's all. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. And then I make sure that I supplement with food. With food. Yeah. Well, sir, thank you. You're very kind to spend all this time with us. I really had a good time talking to you, and uh, have a nice weekend. Thank you. You too, Patrick. And uh, hopefully, this resonates with everybody. I think so. Take care of yourself. The best. All thank right. you, you, sir. Too. Bye bye. Thanks for Bye-bye. being on the show. Patrick Timpone, OneRadioNetwork.com. As I said, we uh, we end, uh, uh, recorded this puppy um, a couple days ago. I will see you tomorrow. We're going to talk with Santos Bonacci, who's really a fascinating fellow, talking about where we are, who we are, why we are, and a lot of spiritual concepts. 
I love you all very much. Thanks for being here. This is OneRadioNetwork.com. See you in the morning, 10 o'clock. Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com.